Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today, welcome to day 10 of Epic versus Apple testimony. If you haven't been following it since the beginning, we've got two playlists, one on antitrust Epic, talking about all of this since the very beginning when Epic launched, quote unquote, Project Liberty last fall to drop prices everywhere but... Google's Play Store and Apple's iOS. And for those of you a little bit more interested in just the current drama, we've got a playlist, Just the Trial, that talks about the actual testimony happening for the past, now, 10 days. Before we get into that day 10 testimony, though, we do have some housekeeping to do. We have some documents to look at. One of those is a document that has been confirmed by The Verge, that is about how Epic decided to strategize its Epic Game Store against its competitors, most specifically Steam, or as Verge says here, Epic wanted Sony's PlayStation PC games to compete with Steam, documents show. And you can see in this strategy document that one of the things they wanted to do was pay $200 million for four to six titles from Sony. Doesn't appear that that worked out, given that Sony's games appear on Steam. They also tried to approach Microsoft and was told by the PC Games Pass leader that he's against what they are doing, presumably the buying of exclusives and bifurcating of the PC market, and that they are effectively bidding against us for content. You also see a summary of what they wanted to do with Nintendo, which was not try. It's a moonshot unto itself. Their corporate history says it's a non-starter, whether that's because of PC games or elsewise. And you can check out this article. I will, of course, link it in the description. But above this, most people in my DMs and social media wanted me to talk about one very specific slide from this presentation, and it was the creator proposal slide. What is it? Paid influencer marketing effort to disrupt Steam's organic traffic coverage. Why? They want to elevate store awareness. They want more people to know Epic Game Store exists. They want to promote their support a creator program, which is their program that allows you to put the name of a streamer that plays Fortnite or what have you into their store. And when you buy V-Bucks, they get a cut of that V-Bucks purchase. Increase SEO via creator links. Just get the name Epic Games Store and Epic out there on the internet a little bit more. Disrupt Steam's organic traffic. Make sure that you get the Epic Game Store in those avenues of marketing that people might otherwise just flock to Steam being the biggest place to buy PC games as of right now. A marketing commitment for Epic Games Store partners and long-term deals are here. And they point out that people were signing deals with places like Mixer. Proposed budget of 10 to $15 million. Now, this was brought to my attention basically because folks think that this is a little bit unethical, that Epic is going out there and buying influencers, sponsoring them. But I'm not so sure I see it exactly the same way. And obviously, you're in a space where I've been pretty confrontational about Epic's theory of the case in their litigation, but they're still a company and they're still trying to break into a market that is controlled by a major market actor like Steam. And if you look at this big red arrow they have on their PowerPoint slide here, it points out that what they really want is to have their name in something like sponsored by here on Con Carnage's profile, where he's sponsored by Asus and Madrinus and GOG. And so if that were in fact the case, when we're talking about something like this, Actually, just getting your name on a sponsored link, having your name mentioned by an influencer, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, in fact, what influencers are selling to these companies for the most part. Where I think people probably get a little bit tripped up is with the notion of surreptitious sponsorship, 
right? Even in this series, Epic versus Apple, we've talked about instances where folks on YouTube and elsewhere have talked about this case, usually on the Epic side of things, and then not admitted that videos before that one or after that one were sponsored by Epic and that there was this relationship with one of the parties at issue that could cause a reasonable viewer to question what was being presented to them. And disclosure is really all that the law and for the most part, ethics is about here. We expect influencers and people that are making their livelihoods in these spaces to go and make those livelihoods and to get money from various parties. And as long as they are disclosing their relationships, for the most part, the Federal Trade Commission and the laws are okay with those kinds of relationships. But you can get into a position where maybe an influencer isn't great about disclosing things. Maybe they're just talking up the Epic Game Store and they don't admit that they were paid by them. I do agree that there can be issues with those types of relationships. And in virtual legality alone, we've talked about influencers sometimes not doing a great job of disclosing things like, oh, Electronic Arts flew us out for a preview event. And I didn't really talk about that that much when I was otherwise espousing the greatness of Apex Legends or what have you. But it's not in and of itself something that I look at and say is terribly problematic even though I have been approached with various sponsorships here at Virtual Legality that were folks that were involved in litigations that wanted me to cover them, but that I didn't feel comfortable taking those sponsorships because I thought it would impugn folks' understanding of what I was saying about them, even if I wouldn't change one minute of my analysis of a given court case if I were taking that money. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be so closely aligned with somebody that is a subject of one of my videos. Still, there is a breadth of possibility there for other influencers to still act ethically, to still act normally. And ultimately, I think when you look at a story like this, I don't necessarily think it's a great expenditure of money. In fact, bringing up the articles about people going to Mixer is amusing because of course, Mixer went down in a ball of fire, partly in all likelihood because they spent so much money on bringing over folks that didn't change much of their metrics at all. But that's that story. The other major story is of course, our dear friends, at Roblox. If you haven't been following all of this, Roblox has come up in Epic versus Apple, the litigation, so often that I had to change my internal pronunciation of the company name to match with my commenters' expectations. But yesterday, they changed even more themselves. Apple said Roblox developers don't make games, and now Roblox agrees. As The Verge reports, massively popular game creation tool Roblox is now a massively popular experience creation tool, Roblox, possibly in response to the ongoing Epic versus Apple trial. Roblox allows a variety of user-created projects on its platform, and until earlier this week, these were all grouped under a tab called Games on Roblox's website. The Games tab now reads Discover on the web, although it still points to an address of roblox.com games. Developers can create and manage experiences, and experiences have max people, rather than players, allowed. The word game has been replaced by experience across nearly the entire Roblox website and the iOS and Android apps now have a Discover tab instead of a Games tab, although both apps are currently classed as games in their respective stores. And again, as we talked about when we were talking about Roblox initially, that makes a lot of sense because on the spectrum between enterprise application and games, Roblox, whatever it is, is clearly closer to games as those two comparison points. The term experiences is consistent 
with how we've evolved our terminology to reflect our realization of the metaverse, a Roblox spokesperson told The Verge. Almost sounds like Tim Sweeney could be talking right there. And it probably is consistent because Roblox is a very weird thing in the world of games. It's a platform. It allows these experiences. Those experiences can have game qualities or not. And it found itself in this maelstrom of Epic versus Apple through no fault of its own and so decided that it wanted no part of the conversation. Because what Epic was arguing is essentially that Apple treats things that are games differently than applications and Roblox is a game store like Epic wants to put up an Epic game store. And so they say, no, Roblox isn't a game. And now Roblox has helped them out because they don't care what they are. They want to make sure their revenue source through Apple and iOS remains and they don't want to get into this fight with Epic versus Apple. As a matter of fact, Roblox is the ones probably acting the most intelligently out of Epic or Apple in this litigation this week because they just said, I'm getting out of the way. It doesn't matter what a game is. Roblox is Roblox. And if it keeps us on the store, we'll change whatever it is that we're referencing. Now, the other part of the Roblox story is the interesting part is that I don't actually think Roblox is a terribly good analog to what's happening with respect to Epic. First of all, Roblox takes money through its app. We've got iTunes, Google Play, and Amazon payments. Robux and membership can be bought in the Roblox mobile app found on iTunes, Google Play, and the Amazon stores. You can buy a membership. You can buy Robux. Note, recurring memberships purchased through places like iTunes cannot be canceled. These memberships are set up directly through your mobile app provider. So they do appear to be abiding by the overall rule, which we've looked at in the guidelines, which is you have to go through in-app payment processing. This is one of Epic's major fights, but it's also a fight that doesn't change for the store within a store concept. If you want to unlock features or functionality within your app, you must use in-app purchase. Apps may not use their own mechanisms to unlock content or functionality, et cetera, et cetera, except if you're on different platforms, multi-platform services. Apps that operate across multiple platforms may allow users to access content, subscriptions, or features they have acquired in your app on other platforms or your website, including consumable items in multi-platform games, provided those items are also available as in-app purchases within the app, which certainly seems to be the case from everything that Roblox has shown us. And yet you're getting into this fight, presumably based on the store within a store concept, where the ban is... It's unacceptable to create an interface for displaying third-party apps, extensions, or plugins similar to the App Store or as a general interest collection. But Roblox has never been that. The things that you can buy in Roblox, whether it's avatars, experiences, or (gasps) games, can only be accessed through the Roblox application. They're not, even though they might be made by other developers, third parties as it pertains to Roblox itself, and they don't look like an App Store. They aren't Epic Game Store. They aren't something that's a terribly good metaphor for this. They just got sucked in, even though Apple generally allows you to advertise your own stuff, your own content in your own app, which we know from every app ever. Anything that has gotcha, anything that sells skins, anything that sells content or expansions to themselves are allowed to sell them in respect to their own application. Roblox is a much better metaphor for those things than it is the Epic Game Store, and yet... Roblox got the heck out of the way, and I do not blame them. With that as our background for what happened, let's talk about day 10 of Epic versus Apple. Yet another day of expert witnesses, says Addie Robertson at The Verge, and we thank her again for live tweeting all of this for us. David Evans, the original expert of experts that's now going to come back and combat everything that Apple's experts has said. Ned Barnes, Peter Rossi, and James Mickens, all from Epic's side. Will more lawyers fail to buy lives on Candy Crush? Who can say? 
Now, the very first thing we get as an argument here is not from David Evans. The witness doesn't pop up first. The very first thing we get is Epic and Apple fighting about what their closing statements should be. Should they be extended? Should they be hour-long or two-hour-long presentations? The judge wants to essentially ask questions and have them kind of combat each other in closing form. And ultimately, the judge gave us what our thumbnail is for this episode. Your experts, upon which much of antitrust law is based, well... They talk past each other frequently. They make assumptions that they sometimes respond to and other times do not. Until I have a chance to go back and really assemble and reassemble and look at all this evidence, another single presentation, your closing arguments, it it doesn't really help me. As a judge, I have to go and look at these charts and tables and who's yelling at who and try to figure out what this market is doing. Your closing statements, as the judge properly says elsewhere in this thread and as this conversation, are probably designed for places like virtual legality or The Verge or anybody else reporting on this. You want to speak to the public about what you think you have proven, and that's fine, but it's not really for me or my benefit. I need to go and get into the weeds as to what's happening here, and I would really like to hear you respond to each other and these interrogatories I might have, but we'll figure it out. You also get the notion that this trial might be lasting a little bit longer than we think. Looks like the trial will last at least until May 24th. Incidentally, that's when the closing arguments are currently being discussed. That's the better part of an extra week uh, or maybe an extra half week, depending on what happens there. Clearly, we were running long on some of these witnesses and the witness schedule, so that's not that unusual. But certainly, it will be interesting to see if the battle of the experts concludes relatively soon and we get back into more of the nitty gritty about how either Apple or Epic operates on a day-to-day basis. David Evans, who kicked off this week's whole expert witness palooza, is now back to argue against the Apple witnesses who have since said he was wrong. Evans is arguing against Apple's expert testimony. One performed an analysis showing that the App Store had seen strong growth and quality maintenance even after allegedly getting monopoly power around 2010. Evan says change can happen gradually and you can't divorce Apple's success from overall tech industry growth. I think Evans is entirely correct there. And I think really both experts on either side have failed to really help the court out on this particular question, right? Apple has gone out there and said with one of their experts, well, look, if we are being so anti-competitive, if we are such bad actors, if we are giving such bad services, why do we have explosive growth? from 2008 to 2021. Just massive, massive growth. And at the end of their cross-examination of Epic's witnesses, they've often said, wouldn't you say the growth is crazy? And they say, yes, the growth is crazy. Evans is right to say, though, that the tech industry in general, mobile adoption, app usage across the country has grown as well. Apple's experts have said, well, that's partly because of Apple and what they did. And that's undoubtedly true. But you do have to take a baseline. Whenever we talk about things like this, it's useful to take a baseline. If the market grows 10,000% and Apple grows 5,000%, that's still enormous growth. But you can start to make a story that Apple is doing something worse than the market, potentially abusing monopoly power, and have that conversation. If, in the alternative, the market goes up 10,000% and Apple goes up 20,000%, Apple has a stronger argument to say, well, sure, the market went up because technology was being adopted, but not only were we driving that, we were doing something better than the market on the whole. Support Apple. And yet the court doesn't have that baseline. Neither side's experts really helped establish that for one side or the other. Evans points out that Apple is probably too simplistic. Apple's pointed out that Epic is too simplistic. And here we are with a difficult decision to make for the court. 
Evans now addresses a paragraph from Hit. We'll read that paragraph first because I think it's useful. He says, and this is an Apple expert, Hit, I analyzed data on all of Epic's Fortnite users following the hotfix to see whether iOS Fortnite users switched their spending on Fortnite to non-iOS and non-Google platforms. Indeed, they did. My analysis shows that Epic retained the vast majority, between 81 and 87%, of iOS Fortnite users pre-hotfix revenue across all transaction platforms in the four months post-hotfix period. And then he continues on with that paragraph. Evan says... This doesn't show that there's meaningful substitution because HIT didn't account for people who spent money on both platforms, but don't end up spending more on their other console to compensate after the iOS ban. So HIT comes in here and it appears to be that he's saying that iOS only users, when they were kicked off of iOS, or more specifically when Fortnite was kicked off of iOS, Epic still got 80 plus percent of their money. And that shows a certain useful bit of substitutability, in my opinion. Evan says it doesn't because he didn't properly take into account multi-platform users and whether or not they spent more money when they were kicked off of the iOS. And I don't know that that actually changes the substitutability analysis, but you see why Evans is presenting today. He's out here to essentially start to bat away some of Apple's biggest arguments. And whether or not that's effective will ultimately come down to what you think is a good description of reality and whose credibility you favor, which we can't predict out here on the outside for what the judge is going to think on these things. But I do think Evans is a little bit glib on some of these responses, including this one. Evans says he doesn't agree with another Apple expert, Richard Shamalenze, that calling iOS a monopoly would also make game console stores a monopoly. Evans says it's a very, very different business. Consoles are a smaller market where people buy based around understanding the set of games they're going to buy, while smartphones are more open-ended and foundational in the computing market, effectively saying games don't drive phone purchases, which is probably accurate at some level, although the app universe certainly drives certain purchases in and of itself. The problem is, once again, Evans comes up here and basically says, nah, they're wrong. Consoles are a very different business, and we'll get back to this as part of this video, certainly. But he also says that phones are different because they're foundational. I think in a perfect world, if you're on Epic's side, you have Evans come up with some backing, with some establishing facts about why exactly Shamalenze is wrong. And here you don't get that. You just get, ah, they're very, very different. Phones are foundational. Consoles aren't the same. And as we'll see in this very video, Epic's got a problem because of their theory of the case because of the way the lawsuits have been brought against folks like Sony. Judge brings up the fact that he keeps saying foundational, asks if that would make them utilities in his opinion. Well, what it sounds like you're saying to me is that these are so fundamental, they're utilities. Evan says he wouldn't necessarily attach that term to them. I don't want to suggest that as foundational platforms, they are something where I would say to Congress that you should think about regulating these companies like we would regulate electric utilities in the past. Judge asks, do you think the government should break Apple and Google up? Judge jumping right into it. I'm a moderate on that topic, Your Honor. I believe it would be a mistake to go down the road of regulation and extreme solution. So we have to talk about this. This is now the second day in a row where the judge has jumped in and said, why aren't you briefing me on essential facilities? Should these companies be broken up? Do you think they should be regulated like utilities, et cetera, et cetera? This is a strong indication that the judge is at least mulling over a notion that The technology companies, whether it's in this case or otherwise, are running amok and that maybe the courts do have a place in doing something about them. Now, the government breakup of Apple and Google 
is not on the table. And Evans does a good job of saying, I'm not going to answer that, give or take. I might have been even stronger. So that's a political question. It's up to the legislature to determine. It's certainly not up to me sitting here in this courtroom, etc. But he says he's a moderate on this topic. And that's an unusual stance to take in and of itself. He's sitting here saying that a contract that was entered into by two parties in one year was perfectly legal. Something changed that neither of the parties could have really known about when it happened, according to him, made the contract they entered into illegal after it was entered into. And now that should be stricken by a federal court as violating a law from 100 plus years ago. That's not exactly moderate, even though it's more moderate than these companies need to be broken up and killed. It's very, very interesting. Now, I do think that Epic's own expert here really tries to put to bed essential facilities doctrine, doesn't want to argue on this score. And if it's Epic's own expert, that's going to present a problem for them if Epic wants to pursue it, as they suggested they might yesterday. Doesn't think that these things should be treated as utilities, doesn't think they're so essential as water and electricity. And yet the judge still kind of nibbles around the edges of this question. Apple cross-examining Evans now, asking if there's any mobile OS provider that has let developers use its platform entirely commission-free. Evans says that Android is an example of this kind of platform since you can sideload. Now, interestingly enough, as we saw in earlier testimony, there's fights about whether Android is free or not, especially when they take a commission over something that you have to enter into, et cetera, et cetera. Epic is currently suing Google about too much friction on sideload. So this testimony is actually pretty weird and might well pop up as referenced in the Google case by Google. This is why in China, it's possible for the Android ecosystem there to support both direct distribution and numerous competing app stores. Evans touches on the fact that Epic has sued Google too, but says that's because of a specific app store developments he doesn't get into. He doesn't want to talk about that friction. And we will come back to China definitely because that's an interesting question in and of itself. Apple lawyer asks about the duty to deal question that we just talked about, essential facilities, keeps going back to the suggestion that Epic is just trying to force Apple to let Epic use its tech for free. Apple bringing up a statement its expert hit made yesterday that developers have been steadily raising prices on in-app purchases without any kind of commission increase from Apple. Hit says it indicated that developers and not Apple are driving increases and that they're able to do so because they're offering higher quality stuff. Evans doesn't have a rebuttal to that. Lawyer then raises anti-steering rules, specifically in the context of the American Express case where the Supreme Court found anti-steering rules constitutional. Do you understand that the American Express anti-steering provisions prevent merchants from implying a preference for non-Amex cards? Lawyer asks. Evans says yes, elaborates a little on it, says he agrees that those restrictions are pro-competitive, that Amex telling the actual merchants from not being allowed to advertise they don't want to take Amex is pro-competitive in the market of payment processing in the market of credit cards or charge cards uh, as American Express might be. And that's an important distinction and one that I think a lot of folks get tripped up on. And it's not just the judge or the lawyers or the reporters or the commenters, it's everybody. And that's this kind of notion of layered markets that what we need to talk about is the market at issue here, which is the market between Apple and the developers, that 30% commission, the restrictions on those developers, and not necessarily developers and their customers or Apple and the end user customers. And because of that layering, because of the way technology works, you do get into interesting questions of whether something like the American Express case is a good analog. Lawyer characterizes the Amex case as being about not having to let merchants direct users to cheaper competitors. I think it's much more narrow than that, says Evans. It's targeted to a situation where a consumer who probably has multiple cards 
walks into a store that probably has an American Express logo on it and probably has a desire to use her American Express card. And then the merchant tells the consumer to not use that card. That the narrowness comes from somebody that comes into a store, into a buying environment with a specific desire. And then the third party comes in and says, no, 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 we don't want to take that money. And that would be distinct to this witness from allowing a developer or a publisher to effectively say, you could buy it here, but also you can buy it over there and it might be cheaper. And whether or not that is distinct is going to be an open question. I don't think it's a great analog for Apple versus Epic, but certainly Apple keeps to pressing on it and is trying to press Evans on it. It's that targeted setting that the American Express anti-steering rules are targeted to, says Evans. Lawyer disagrees and asks again if it's about letting Amex stop merchants from directing them to competitors. Wants to get a yes. We don't actually find out in this thread if he gets that yes. But ultimately, it's not that important because what we're talking about is distinct from that situation. And the judge has indicated that the anti-steering rules probably are a closer question than some of the other things that Epic is asking for, at least as this litigation goes on. Now we're talking about where Apple banning a third-party store would cross the line into anti-competitive behavior. Evan says he understands that rogue app stores could be banned. Judge asks, does that include app stores that offer pornography? Evan says that in theory, that could be a hard line Apple could draw, but it's not like the iPhone is designed in a way that stops people from accessing pornography through things like the Safari browser. And that's useful. We talked about that when we were discussing the Itch.io testimony, but it is actually distinct, right? The actual internet, the browser infrastructure and Safari and the other browser alternatives, they're controlled by Apple in some respect. We talked about that earlier in this series as well, but that that opening an internet browser is a distinct experience from going into an app store and actually getting an app that specializes in some kind of adult content, that the actual process of offering internet is different if it's going to be open or restricted than offering an app store. And Apple probably should have the right to control certain aspects of its operating system differently than other aspects, that a browser is distinct from an app store, is distinct from a communications platform, whether that's text or phone or what have you. And I do think that the witness testimony here is accurate to point out that you can obviously get adult content on your phone if you're really looking for it, but that is distinguishable from Apple allowing applications in their store to give similar content on a operating system basis. And rogue stores are going to be an open question because it's unclear exactly what line Evans would draw, right? We talk about pornography. He talks about browsers, but the Apple lawyer says, would a rogue app store include one that distributed apps that were not compliant with Apple's policies with respect to user policy, or might've been privacy, depending on what the question asked. Evans says there are scenarios where that denial could have competitive implications. And I think you see Apple bringing up a good point here, which is Apple has some right to control what's happening on its operating system, what it supports, what it wants to have its brand associated with, right? And it has some level of ability to control that for what even Evans here would acknowledge are rogue app stores, rogue nations, wildcard actors, people that are otherwise creating more and more problems for Apple. But he's unwilling to commit to where that line might be, which the court's going to look at and say, well, that's a problem. We need to have bright lines. We need to know when people are violating the law. We need to help establish those, even if I'm willing to side with you, Epic. Or as Evan says, the road I don't want to go down is one where Apple has the right to basically go back to being a monopolist and making all the decisions about what can happen 
in the system. Now, that's an interesting locution from Evans in any event. And this is one of the things that has happened this entire week that I want to point out, which is that as we've talked about in virtual legality, it's not illegal to be a monopolist. It's not illegal to be so successful as a competitor that you essentially take a market power position. It's illegal to restrain trade, to maintain that, to abuse that power, or to otherwise cause issues for potential growth of competition. If Epic wins and Apple has to rescind its rules on app stores or in-app payment processing or anti-steering or any of these various things, that doesn't change that Apple is a monopolist under Epic's theory of the case. The monopoly power comes from its control of access to the iOS. That is what Epic's theory is framed around. That's the markets that Evans presented. That's why in 2010, he declares them a monopolist. Whether or not they use that power through these rules, and those rules are determined to be illegal uses of the power, doesn't change the actual power at its core. So he does this a lot. And I'm not saying that this isn't easy to do. This isn't kind of angry at Evans here, but he combines this notion of whether or not you're a monopolist with whether or not you're using illegal power in a fashion that probably isn't what you should be doing if you're an expert on this specific type of testimony. We're talking about Apple has been determined to be a monopolist. Based on Epic's theory, there's really nothing they can do to get out of that determination. It's just a matter of what contractual terms they can sign. But Evan says here, as a kind of normative policy prescription, I would prefer to not see them making all the decisions about what can happen on their system, which is fine. The question is whether the law requires that. And then we get back to China. Apple's lawyer is telling Evans to go back to a section of his report where he favorably talks about how Android's store model works in China. Evans takes issue with the lawyer saying he called China a shining example, and they're having the world's most passive-aggressive argument about it. You always got to be careful about referencing China in American court. Evans says, the road I would like to see Apple travel is Apple having competition. He says that doesn't mean he wants a market that replicates China, but I do take China as an example of another situation where there has been essentially unbridled competition in app stores. And what does that look like? Well, again, we've got The Verge to talk to us about it. Really good job from The Verge on a lot of these topics. What does that look like? The clearest example to point to is in China, where Google is outright banned. Instead, each smartphone company that isn't Apple runs some version of Android, but there are over 400 app stores in place of the Google Play Store. Of the 400 stores, 10 capture most of the country's market share. Many of its most profitable tech giants take large subsidies from the government, often self-censor content to abide by authorities' wishes. And in China, having this fragmented app store ecosystem creates all sorts of different conditions. First, they headline, all app stores are not made equal. The immense fragmentation of Android in China, which varies across different smartphone makers, means that the average Chinese user uses nearly 40 apps on their phone a month and about 11 a day. These numbers are slightly higher than ones for users in the US and Europe, and they have, on average, more than 100 apps in total. Users download multiple stores for apps they want. App developers juggle options in order to figure out what store they can get on and what they have to get on. In China, app stores also take a larger cut of developer profits compared to the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. While a standard 30% of in-app purchases goes to the App Store, China's mobile carrier also takes another 30% unless users pay through WeChat Pay or Alipay. Now, 
It seems unlikely that in the US or Europe, when we're talking about these questions in Epic versus Apple, you're going to have an authoritarian mobile carrier just take another 30%. But when you're arguing that China looks better, we get back to the foundational question of what this case is about, which is should consumers have the right to not have 400 app stores as a possibility, to not have to go and sort through all the app stores to find the right price, to find who's supporting their updates, to figure out where applications are made available when developers have to pick and choose on what stores they appear on and instead choose a walled garden that maybe you don't like. If you're a commenter that says people that buy into Apple's ecosystem are silly for locking themselves into that system, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I think reasonable minds can say walled gardens are something I want and walled gardens are for silly people and have that conversation productively. But if you're David Evans, if you're Epic, understand that he is here in court saying basically, I don't think Apple should get to decide what happens on its system. I think it should look like what is described here. And maybe that's okay with you, but it's fundamental to what this case is. And in my opinion, editorializing, I think you get more consumer choice from having a product out there in the market that doesn't do this, that allows you to decide, I don't want to engage in any of this. And yes, that might restrict you in some fashion, but you decided at the front end when you purchased the product that you wanted to be restricted in that fashion in order to get whatever benefits you think come from that walled garden. And I know a lot of you disagree with that and that's okay. But what we're looking at is should the law force this model, the walled garden model of Apple, completely out of the market as illegal. Finally, as we promised, the lawyer from Apple points out that Evans said his testimony wouldn't have any impact on console stores, but he notes that Sony has been sued on the same grounds since this trial started, implying that's not true. It's probably more than an implication because the Sony case, as we talked about in this series, is very much the first piggyback lawsuit. And it is very important for folks that discuss this topic to understand that whatever Tim Sweeney and Epic say about their case, that they don't want to bring it against Xbox or Sony or Nintendo or other hardware manufacturers that have locked in operating systems, it does not matter. It is outside of their control. Every American citizen and international citizens, to some extent, can bring a case on any grounds. And if those grounds include precedent established from Epic versus Apple, that a locked ecosystem and walled garden of hardware is illegal by law, expect a lot more of these lawsuits against everybody that maintains one of those locked in operating systems. It's not Epic's call to make. Evans is excused. Our next witness is Epic called Ned Barnes. Barnes came up before the trial because he estimated Apple's app store had an operating margin of 75 to 78%, a number Apple has disputed. Now, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about this kind of forensic analysis of financial terms. Apple's going to pretty clearly eviscerate this kind of testimony, primarily because there's some fundamental flaws in what Barnes actually wound up analyzing. And that doesn't kill... Epic's case. I'm just warning you because we're going to go through this pretty rapidly. And when you see the cross-examination, you'll see exactly what the problems are here. Back to Barnes. As mentioned before, he's been called up to talk about Apple's profits from the App Store, something that Apple says can't be meaningfully separated from other parts of its business. Barnes takes an example from Apple's expert, Shamalenze, who compared the App Store 
to a company that invested in high automation and few employees. Shabalenze said that you'd see very high profit margins on paper, but those wouldn't account for the upfront cost. Barnes disagrees. Barnes says that depreciation expenses would still apply while calculating operating profit, so you'd still get an accurate estimate. Now, Barnes isn't necessarily wrong here, but we have to take a step back and talk about accounting. If you've never read a financial statement before or an annual report before, I highly recommend it. Electronic Arts Activision has them popular, has them made available to the public. You can look at them if you're interested in these kinds of things. But one of the important things to note about accounting is that they are done based not on rules, not on laws, not on mandates, but in accordance with principles. GAAP, G-A-A-P, which is the usual way of describing what accounting is, is generally accepted accounting principles, concepts that provide a framework in which you can actually make a number of different determinations, all of which are quote unquote right, that fall within that principal framework. One of those determinations is exactly how you're going to show the use of capital in your company on your bottom line. So Barnes says here, Apple should be allocating its capital, its depreciation expenses against the money it is making. And he's not necessarily wrong for a specific way that you want to show how your company operates. It is, however, difficult to do capital depreciation in a technology company like Apple, where you've got all these different revenue sources and you're using equipment in different ways than maybe a standard manufacturing kind of concept. Generally accepted accounting principles work great in some contexts, not so great in other contexts. Technology companies like Apple is probably one of those where you have a little bit more fuzziness than if you were, say, making ball bearings on the line, where you can prorate the depreciation of the equipment that does these things on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and these things on Tuesday and Thursday. Apple instead invests in research and development and all these other concepts, and it applies to design and hardware and app store and a bunch of other things in a fashion that doesn't allow for kind of easy calculation. Barnes is then being asked about those kinds of shared costs, an expense that has benefits to more than one business unit or product line or service line in a business. Apple has said it has a lot of these. Barnes says it's very common to allocate costs across divisions. Yeah, assuming that you can do it. Apple's lawyer is up now, turning questions around how Epic's accounting works. Barnes says he wasn't asked to analyze Epic's financials, but agrees he would believe earlier testimony from Tim Sweeney about how its finances work, right? So you're Apple, you get up there and you're doing some cross-examination. You say, well, okay, you didn't look at Epic's finances, but you would agree that the CEO, Tim Sweeney, if he commented on how he accounted for his finances, that would probably be something we could take as a court in this litigation as, as true, as accurate. You would say that, right? And he says, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tim Sweeney knows what he's talking about. Apple asked Sweeney, if Epic had products and services that couldn't have precise profits calculated because they're part of a holistic business, i.e. the same thing Apple is claiming about the App Store and Sweeney had agreed. That's a pretty big spike of the football on this particular witness to have Epic's own CEO say, yeah, yeah, in a technology company, you've got research and development and holistic enterprise costs that you really can't say go to Unreal Engine or you can't really say go to the Epic Game Store because that's the way financial accounting works for modern companies. Lawyer is asking if Barnes is assessing Apple's witness credibility here. Barnes says he wasn't. Then we get a pop-in from Leon Island, who we've talked about in this series as well, who says Barnes thought the Apple documents were fully burdened, meaning they included identifiable costs and an allocation of those costs. 
Apple's witness, Mark Rollins, however, said in deposition, they were not fully burdened. We didn't make those numbers. We didn't put those on there to establish exactly what the capital costs across the company were. This was a specific slice of looking at what the App Store actually makes. So you've got Barnes now saying, well, Tim Sweeney allowed for not being allowed to put capital costs on a holistic tech company. You then see that the actual analysis that was done was not on what he thought he was analyzing. Finally, you get moving to Barnes' analysis of online marketplaces that he can compare with Apple's App Store. You did not make any effort to demonstrate that the companies you identified were comparable to the App Store. Barnes says he was just looking for consistency of accounting methods, which is a very silly thing to say because what you're looking for when you're doing analysis of what makes sense as an operating profit margin are people and companies that do the same thing, not how they accounted for what they did. Lawyer says he didn't calculate, say, operating margins for Microsoft Store, Google Play Store, Samsung Galaxy Store, PlayStation Store, maybe the Nintendo Store. Instead, it was stores like Rakuten, which sells physical goods. So at this point in the analysis, Barnes just wants to go home. This isn't going to be terribly useful for Epic. And ultimately, it doesn't matter. Epic is trying to establish that Apple is acting anti-competitively. Enormously high profit margins can help kind of contextualize that and help hint that there's monopoly abuse going on, but it doesn't make the case for them. So this is all kind of angels on the head of a pin. Finally, we get to the next witness. Barnes goes home and probably doesn't think about this case ever again. Another epic expert witness coming up, Peter Rossi, a UCLA statistics and marketing professor. And we're going to talk about what he did here. Rossi designed a survey that tried to measure a hypothetical where Apple digital physical products were increasing in price while prices on, say, the Play Store or websites were not. And Rossi here is going to fall into the Barnes category, and I'm going to talk to you about why that is. And it's not because he did anything wrong on an objective basis. It's just that he didn't answer the question that's posed by this particular case. He is doing an analysis of what we call a SNP test, which is a small but substantial non-transitive increase in price. And that is a test that looks at whether or not making that small permanent price increase will affect a company's bottom line, generally looking at variable costs and how many people will leave when they make that price increase to see whether or not somebody has monopoly power. So he designed a survey that tried to measure a hypothetical, this is what economists do, where Apple digital physical products were increasing price while prices on, say, the Play Store or websites were not. The problem is he asked the wrong question, he framed it the wrong way, and he asked the wrong people. So let's see why that is. So say the Apple App Store increases prices by 5%, for instance, with no indication that they'll go down. So the scenario is supposed to simulate a long-term change. Judge asks, well, how did you deal with the fact that consumers know prices are always low in December and then prices go up in January? Rossi says consumers don't have that expectation around apps and in-app purchases. I think that's probably accurate. I don't think I have a seasonal expectation around the App Store as much as I do in other contexts, but maybe they do run Christmas sales and things like that. Judge asks if he actually had done research on consumer expectations. Rossi says he hasn't. We move on. Leon Island then pops in with what the actual questions are here. You told us that your spending on IAPs and subscriptions during the past 30 days was $4.04. The higher prices mean that the same purchases would have instead cost you $4.24. Nothing else changes. Would you stay or would you go? Now, I mentioned that I think that this is the wrong question asked to the wrong person. The reason for that is that we're looking at the wrong market. As we talked about as part of this video, we're talking about the market between Apple 
and its developers. That 30% cut. The right question is what happens on an increase in that cut, not the bottom line to customers, not the least of which because Apple doesn't control that. One of the things that kind of goes by the wayside in the discussions of this case is that it's a very unusual one because developers are setting their bottom line price to customers. If they want to charge through that 30%, they absolutely can. And there might be evidence that suggests that they do. We haven't really seen it writ large in this litigation. We've seen it claimed by Epic that developers charge more, but we haven't seen it. The other component is that they're primarily selling currencies into a second economy that the developers control. So you have two levels of developer control because if you want to buy a skin in Fortnite and you buy V-Bucks, that skin could cost 500 V-Bucks or it could cost 800 or 950 or whatever. And that changes fundamentally the value of what you purchased with American dollars, the price of which the developer set and that Apple takes a cut from. So when you ask the question of consumers, you're asking the wrong question. And we can see that even with the Department of Justice. Now, the Department of Justice doesn't look at SNP tests in the exact same way for the same purpose. And the American jurisprudence under antitrust law is more holistic than just the SNP test. You don't just prove it and then you win. It's a matter of taking into account a whole bunch of things such as behavior as a monopolist. But we can see here in example eight from the horizontal merger guidelines of the Justice Department, exactly what they think the proper market for something like this should be. In a merger between two oil pipelines, the SNP would be based on the price charged for transporting the oil not on the price of the oil itself. If pipelines buy the oil at one end and sell it at the other, the price charged for transporting the oil is implicit, equal to the difference between the price paid for the oil at the input end and the price charged for oil at the output end. The relevant product sold by the pipelines is better described as pipeline transportation of oil than as oil at point B. You asked a question about what oil costs and to see whether customers should leave when you should have asked the question of if Apple increases their commission from 30 to 32% or something like a 5% increase, something small but substantial, will they leave? And as Apple has posited throughout this litigation, if a small number leaves, and that would ordinarily be small in a manufacturing context, it should be magnified because this is a network effect context. I don't know if anybody will buy that. It's a bit of a novel theory, but Apple would bring it up. Apple's lawyer comes to cross-examine this particular witness, same one who eviscerated Ned Barnes earlier today. That's from Eddie Robinson. Apple's lawyer is asking whether the survey indicated a permanent change to Apple prices. As Rossi had said previously, it doesn't. She's now comparing this to earlier question drafts. One of the drafts explicitly told people that they would be paying higher prices in the future. Now that's the non-transitory component, right? If you want to do a SNP test, you have to establish that it's not going to be something that is transitory, that is going to change. Because if you do a survey like this and people say, oh, well, I can wait it out. If it's going to be a month or two months, essentially the reverse of waiting out a sale for a video game or something else that you want to purchase, then of course, fewer people on the margins are going to leave your storefront or what have you than they would if they thought this change was permanent. So you have to establish it's small, it's substantial, and it's non-transitory. You have to ask the right audience who is having this price change. And it doesn't look like this particular witness did any of that. Also talking about audiences, let's talk about the customers he asked. Apple lawyer is also asking whether Rossi's survey hit the same target population as the people who play Fortnite. His survey is 17 plus years old in terms of user base, while Apple asserts most of Fortnite's core user base is younger teenagers. Now, he has perfectly good defenses for that. This isn't them trying to hide the ball or steal a base or whatever other sports metaphor you want to use. 
There are a lot of laws and data privacy regulations that kick in for 16 and under, and even more that kick in for 13 and under. So he basically says it's really hard to get that data. I can't get that data. We can talk about 17 plus. And that's fair, but it's also not as useful as it could have been. Rossi now steps down to join Barnes in the green room to talk about their witness testimony. And now we're going to get James Mickens, a computer science professor at Harvard and Epic Witness a witness for Epic, not in and of himself Epic, although I don't know him personally. Mickens is here to analyze the security of the iPhone app store, which is good because Apple continues to say, we earn our 30% commission from in part having an extra secure ecosystem. And they want to say, Epic does, that that isn't in fact the case. As this witness says, when we look at the benefit that the app review provides, App Review actually provides minimal additional security benefits that an iOS alone could provide or an operating system in general. The security is mostly enforced by iOS and the safety of your experience on the iPhone is largely guaranteed by the operating system and not the App Review process. Now that's an interesting bit of testimony in and of itself, right? Apple is saying we deserve 30% because we have a secure ecosystem. It's a little bit secondary to ask why that ecosystem is secure. So if you assume the iOS is doing it in and of itself, that is something that's worth something in terms of commission. And the judges consistently said, well, it appears that Apple is earning something, right, Epic? The judge would also ask about Android. Do you have any opinion as to why the Android has more security issues than the iPhone? I believe that they are in the same rough equivalence class of susceptibility to malware and other threats, Mickens says. Now that is not common knowledge. That is in fact the opposite of common knowledge, at least as the marketing goes, at least as people think about these ecosystems. In general, Android open source, more vulnerable to attacks. Apple locked down, walled gardens as high as the eye can see, and not as susceptible to those attacks. Or as Kaspersky says, or you can look up any other kind of security article, Android security has questionable security reputation, mainly because no one owns it. In other words, no one regulates what can or cannot be offered as an Android app, or even what can be sold as an Android phone versus Apple iOS. Apple's iOS mobile operating system is tightly controlled by Apple itself. That's what we're discussing, which also tightly controls the apps available in the Apple App Store. This control allows Apple devices to offer good security out of the box at the price of some user restrictions. Liberty versus security. iOS users will find themselves limited to Apple-approved devices and apps, which is a positive for streamlining security. Additionally, the closed ecosystem only permits apps that don't access the the phone's root coding, which reduces both the need for iOS antivirus and makes an iOS antivirus impossible to create for app store approval. Now, that second part is worthy of discussion. You could absolutely have a a fork in your questioning that says, doesn't your walled garden's walls make it more dangerous because you can't prevent certain things? You're essentially trusting Apple, as this last paragraph makes clear iOS is not invulnerable to malware attacks. If Apple misses any vulnerabilities or chooses certain undesirable approaches to security, you will have little to no control over this. In the Apple ecosystem, this is a customer saying, I trust Apple and I want Apple to have my back and I don't want anybody else to deal with this. I don't want to have to deal with buying Norton or Bitdefender or anything else on Android and I'm giving up some of my liberty to hopefully get some of that security. And these are the kinds of articles that you can see all over the place. We then have Leah Nylon with a nice description of what is, what's happening with respect to the app review process. You got a long kind of dissection of what the operating system is, how certificates work. You basically see here in this picture, Alice goes, she registers what she wants to do. She gets a certificate. She signs her app 
It goes into app review and then Apple co-signs it before it goes into the app store. And that's a process that provides at least a modicum of security. Or as the judge says, you're not suggesting there's no value to the human review, are you? No, says Mickens, but the benefit of human review is marginal at best. And then we get into the question of what's legal versus what's illegal. iPhone, Apple says, it's important. It's an important step. Even if it's marginal, it's helpful, right? You wear your masks outside, whether or not it's terribly useful to preventing viral strains, because it might be helpful on the margins. If app review is helpful on the margins, then we can do it because it's our business decision to do it. And maybe it's not helpful on the bottom line, but it's helpful for peace of mind when we're marketing our hardware. Don't have to even agree that it works. And do you want the court system to pop in and say that it doesn't? It's a very interesting piece of testimony because a lot of what Micken says suggests that iOS in and of itself is secure. You've got other reports, as we just mentioned, that talk about the lockdown nature of the Apple infrastructure helping to make that secure, but he doesn't want to say that that is in fact the case. If iOS were opened up to third-party stores, that would not prevent users from using the regular app store and it wouldn't stop Apple from reviewing those apps. These things can coexist. And I think this is a great point from Mickens and it's one that's come up a lot as we discuss this court case now for the better part of nine or 10 months. And that is this notion that, okay, walled gardens might need to come down, but even if they come down, you can still use your phone in the same fashion that you were using it before. You just only have the app store. You ignore everything else. And that might well be the case. And that's you know pretty compelling, I think, in certain respects. There is the counter argument that says, well, to the extent Apple has to expend resources on making their operating system interoperable with other app stores, with allowing it, with policing it to whatever level folks like David Evans would allow them to police it, those are resources that could have gone into benefiting the hardware and the walled garden that you originally wanted to buy in that are now instead going to support this other stuff that you're not using. This is the single player video game that adds a multiplayer mode, which might be great, but you don't play multiplayer. It's still worth acknowledging that some portion of the company had to spend time and money making that thing. And The question remains, does that change your experience in any way? Does it change what's available on the App Store? Does it change how Apple functions in its hardware? Does it change how often they update their hardware or software? How often they release iPhones and improve upon what they're putting out there in the market? As we've talked about from the Department of Justice, there are open questions as to whether these things harm innovation. If we have a mandate to deal with your rival. If we impose rules on these kinds of things, certainly there will be some effect on the Apples and Googles of the world that thought they could run their business in one way and now can't. Maybe that's good if consumers are benefited, but you got to make that case to the court. And so I do think it's worthy of discussion. Judge asks what proportion of apps in iOS go through the app store as opposed to the other less vetted methods like enterprise distribution. Would it change this expert's analysis if there was only a tiny number that Apple could have close relationships with? I think that it's a subtle and complex topic. Even in that world, you would still want to provide client-side OS security mechanisms because you need that insurance. Judge asks, but could the number be so small that it's just an acceptable risk, which wouldn't work if you had fully fledged third-party app stores? Mickens acknowledges that scalability is potentially an issue, but a limited one. You've made a good point about third-party access. And this is an important point. The judge is on her game on these kinds of things. It is one thing to do an expert analysis and say, look, 
Apple doesn't get much out of this app review process. Their iOS is secure. They get that security from the way their technology functions. Look, they already have certain openings in their signature and certificate policies for enterprise distribution. It hasn't killed anything. And the judge might think that's exactly accurate. However, the follow-up question is, you're describing the situation as it exists today. Epic would have that situation changed, perhaps significantly. What is the effect of that change? And the expert says, we don't know. I mean, we're guessing as to what the future is. If there is just 400 app stores on Apple, what happens to their model? What happens to their product? We don't know. And certainly judges, when they're looking at things like injunctions and preventing people from enforcing contracts, are going to be more reluctant than not to make wide sweeping sea changes of entire industry business models. So I think it's a useful question. It's certainly an interesting one. The judge does point out that she's read an article in Tech Review that Addie Robertson thinks is this one. That is an interesting point that this particular witness hasn't brought up yet and might in the next day's testimony, that there's an argument to be made that Apple's walled garden is useful, very secure, until somebody gets in. That much like that security article that we read earlier in this video, if you get past their restrictions, Apple doesn't necessarily have the same ability and the same methodology for getting hackers out. That the walled gardens are walls, that they keep people out, sure, but if you get in, they also keep people in in a fashion that maybe is not something that iPhone users are familiar with. And that might be another avenue of attack for Epic and certainly one that the judge is well-versed to bring up in this capacity. And with that, we're wrapping up day 10 and week two. We'll be back with more testimony and presumably at least a few more metaphors. Oh, I can almost guarantee it on Monday. And that is week two of Epic versus Apple. I think a lot of things happened today, not a lot of which actually changed the scales for one side or the other. David Evans came back in, said Apple was wrong. We expected that. Didn't actually add a lot to the evidentiary pile on that score. So it will still be up to the judge to determine who's right and who's wrong on those kind of macro levels between the experts. Epic brought a couple of experts in Rossi uh, and their financial accountant folks that really didn't help them and didn't add much, didn't kill their case, certainly. And now we're talking about security, but haven't yet gotten to the cross-examination from Apple. So we'll still leave that as unscored as to how that witness will do when we get back to testimony on Monday. If you enjoy talking about Epic versus Apple, the business and law of video games and technology, please consider supporting the channel. We need every little bit of help. Thank you so much for those of you that already do. We've got a Patreon. We've got Streamlabs. We've got shirts. We've got mugs. And just subscribe. Ring the bell. Upvotes, downvotes, comments. Tell YouTube we're here. Tell your friends that we're here because every little bit helps. Thank you so much if you caught this on YouTube for watching Virtual Legality. If you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will see you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.